Well, if you'd please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you happen to be visiting with us, today is the third of a five-part series where we are tracing the theme of the kingdom of God through the whole of Scripture. And I opened this study by singing a number of carols, and I tried to make the point that you'd be hard-pressed to find one that doesn't mention the king or the kingdom. And so this seemed like an appropriate topic for this season. And I was talking with one of you last week, and and you noted how different this series is from what we normally do. You know, normally we'll pick one book and slowly walk through it together. It's like someone walking through the forest and commenting on the bark and leaves leaves from, from each individual tree. But in this study, we aren't walking through the forest. We aren't even driving through the forest. We are flying over it in a helicopter, looking at the forest as a whole, looking down at the curvature of the landscape, the hills and the valleys. We're able to look far ahead 
on the horizon. And hopefully doing a series like this will help you to see the big picture of what God is doing in history. You know, the Bible is 66 books written by lots of different authors in different languages in different genres. But together they're telling one grand story. A story that continues today. And one of the things that's an essential element of this story is the rule of God over all people and all creation. So on our helicopter ride today, we'll make it to the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the monarchy in Israel, the dynasty of King David. And as we do, we will again seek to apply the definition of the kingdom that I've repeated each week. And I'll do so again. This is not my definition. It comes from an author named Patrick Schreiner who defines kingdom as the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. That's what kingdom is. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Power, people, place. And we're going to look at those three today as we consider the rise and fall of the monarchy. No three points today, just two. As we look at the rise and fall of the monarchy. So let's pray and then we'll read our text in 2 Samuel 7. Almighty God, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your word does not change. It does not fail. It is not untruthful. And it does not go out void. So, Father, this morning, as we read this incredible passage, as we read this passage, where we hear you speak directly, more than you've spoken Since the time of Moses, would we ourselves have our confidence strengthened in your word and your promise? I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel 
whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words. And in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. So we're going to begin by looking at the rise of the monarchy. And when I refer to monarchy, I'm referring to the Davidic dynasty. I'm referring to King David and his sons who would rule after him. And if you've been paying attention this fall as we've gone through the first 12 chapters of 1 Samuel, you have some idea of the context of David coming to the throne. It won't be long before we see the Lord tell Samuel to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. And the name of that son is David. After the death of Saul, David will come to the throne. His enemies will be subdued. His people and land will have peace. And one day King David has a troubling thought. He's living in this luxurious house. But where is the Lord living? Where is the Ark of the Covenant kept? In a tent. In the tabernacle that was built back in Moses' day. A tent that had traveled with the people as they wandered in the wilderness and as they entered the land. A tent that had survived the time of the judges, a tent that was now pitched in Jerusalem. And it was an expensive tent. 
It was a large tent, but it's still a tent. And David is thinking of the majesty and greatness of the Lord. David is recognizing that he is the true king, and David is just a prince. He's just a servant. And he's troubled by the absurdity and the backwardsness of these living arrangements. It's not right that I'm living in this beautiful house, but the Lord Almighty is dwelling in a tent, so I need to build him a house. So Nathan goes to, I'm sorry, David goes to Nathan, the prophet, and tells him this. You know, this is David's finest moment. In just a few chapters, David will look out one of his windows and see a beautiful woman on her rooftop. And what follows will be his lowest moment. But here is David at his best. Here he is humbling himself and wishing to honor his Lord and King. But what happens? That night, the Lord comes to Nathan and says, I have a message I want you to give to David. You will not build me a house. I've never asked for a house. All these years, I've dwelt in a tent with my people. I don't need a house. I don't want a house. I want to be in the midst of my people. You know, we read the account of the birth of Christ and the lowly conditions in which he was born. And all the years that followed where he would describe himself saying that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We read that and we, we're struck by the humility of the Lord Jesus. But that's not just a New Testament thing. Long before Luke chapter 2, the Lord was dwelling in a tent among his people. While his servants, like David, lived in a beautiful house. You know, there may be times when you're struck by the greatness and majesty of this God, and that is right and good. But how often are you left speechless by the humble condescension that comes paired with his majesty? Not only would he choose a people and bless a people, but he would also desire to dwell with them. It's beyond words. And what does he say next? He makes promises to David. He says, Nathan, I want you to go to David tomorrow. Tell him these words. First, tell him that I will make his name great. The same thing he said to Abraham, he's now saying to David. I will make your name great. I will put you in the position of prominence. The same position that the patriarchs occupy. Second, the Lord says, I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them so that they may dwell in that place and be disturbed no more. He's going to give the people a place. He's going to plant them. Think of the image of a gardener here, 
opening up the dirt, making a hole, gently taking the plant out of the pot, placing it, covering it, watering it, tending it. I'm going to do that for my people. I'm going to give them a home where they will be secure. And then right in line with that, third, I will give them rest from all their enemies. Your people will not be harassed or oppressed. They will be able to grow and thrive in safety. You see in the three Ps from the kingdom definition here? Power, I will make your name great in all the earth. Place, I will plant Israel in their own place. I will give them somewhere to dwell. And then people, not only will they be planted, they will be secure and have rest from all their enemies. We've got the promise of a kingdom here. And then comes something new. The Lord says, David, I will raise up a dynasty after you that will endure forever. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever is a long time. What a response. David desired to build the Lord a house. And he said, no, David. I'm going to build you a house. I will make your name great. I will provide a place for your people. I will give them rest from their enemies. And I will establish your dynasty forever. Looking at the details surrounding these promises, Dale Ralph Davis comments and says, what God is going to build for David is something that death does not annul. Sin cannot destroy And time will not exhaust. That is wonderful. What God is going to build for David is something death does not annul. Sin cannot destroy. And time will not exhaust. And I know we read this and it it seems like something that happened a long time ago. But saints, I cannot communicate enough how important it is to have these promises of God to David at the forefront of your mind as you read your New Testament and as you approach Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Don't forget these promises. We're going to come back to them Christmas Eve morning and New Year's Eve as well. So David's days do come to their time of fulfillment. He dies and lies down with his fathers. And who reigns after him? His son Solomon. And during Solomon's time, the kingdom continues to experience peace and prosperity and expansion. Solomon is given the privilege of building the first, tab- the first temple, a more permanent dwelling place for uh, the people to come and offer sacrifices to the Lord and to come and worship him. A more permanent dwelling place for the Lord among his people. There will be rulers from other nations who come to seek Solomon's wisdom. 
And rulers who come just to gaze upon the splendor of his kingdom. What do you think the people of Israel were saying during this time? Solomon has to be the one. We know the promises that the Lord spoke to David. And we really weren't expecting it this quickly. But this has to be it. It has to be Solomon. Look at his kingdom. Look at his wisdom. Look at his influence. Look at his wealth. Surely he is the one whose reign will endure forever. But then Solomon died. Just like his father. And one of his sons reigned in his place. And here comes the fall of the monarchy. You know, the fall really started with Solomon. And it was caused by the same three W's that all kings on earth are tempted to hoard. Weapons, wealth, and wives. Solomon built up an army. Lots of weapons. He purchased horses and chariots from from Egypt. Something the Lord had instructed his kings not to do. God wanted his kings to trust in him as the protector and defender of his people, not Egyptian chariots. But Solomon did the opposite. He also accrued great wealth. 1 Kings 10 tells us that in this day, there was so much wealth in the land that silver was considered worthless. In Solomon's day, they treated pieces of silver like you and I treat pennies. There was great wealth And again, Solomon would be tempted to find his security, his safety, his influence in his wealth. And then the third W, weapons, wealth, and wives. Solomon at one point had over 1,000 wives and concubines. Beautiful women from all parts of the known world. And do you know what they brought into Solomon's home? Their local gods, their own religions. And in time, Solomon was led astray and actually had other temples built where these wives could worship their idols. Solomon greatly sinned against the Lord. And so what happens is that after his death, the kingdom is torn in two, the power, people, and place are divided. There's a line that goes right across the nation, splitting the place God had given in two. And everything north of that line was named Israel, and everything south of that line was called Judah. The land was split in half. But so was the power. The men from David's family continued to reign in the south, in Judah. There would be 20 of them. And then in the north, in Israel, the the Davidic line was rejected. And a new dynasty would set up and there would be 19 kings in the north. The power was split. And as you read the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you'll see words repeated over and over. The words, and he died. And he died. And he died. 
meaning that none of them turned out to be the promised king who would reign forever. Well, what about the people? Would they remain secure in their home? They have rest from their enemies? No. Strong, terrifying nations would rise up. Nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians would emerge on the scene and do great damage. Egypt even would continue to cause problems. And at first, these foreign empires were content with God's people being their servants and paying them tribute and coming to fight for them when they were called. But when the servants proved disloyal, the hammer stroke fell hard. And in the year 722 BC, the emperor of Assyria had had enough of the northern kingdom. And so he sent his army to surround the northern capital of Samaria. The city was destroyed. Many people died. And those who survived were carried back to Assyria, never to be heard from again. The southern kingdom would last longer, but not forever. 130, 136 years later, in the year 586, the Babylonians would come to Jerusalem. And they'd surround the city. And if you'd like to know what the people within the city were feeling at the time, you can read the book of Lamentations and find out. It was a dark time. Many people, many children starved to death. The conditions within Jerusalem were so horrible that people resorted to cannibalism. Under this siege, a boiled donkey's head in a pot was worth a year's pay. And that, but in time, the defenses finally failed. The city was taken. The temple Solomon built was destroyed. Every stone was removed from the foundation and scattered. And those people who survived were chained up and hauled back to Babylon. Listen to this account from 2 Kings 25. It tells us of the last king to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. In the ninth year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the final Davidic king in Judah. He's number 20. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so great in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans... It's another name for the Babylonians. The Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon. And they passed sentence on him. 
They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. By all human reckoning, this is the end of the Davidic dynasty. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar knew about the Lord's promise to David and he wanted to utterly squash it. And so he captures the king from David's line, Zedekiah, kills his sons in front of Zedekiah and then gouges out his eyes so that the last thing that Zedekiah ever sees is the death of his children and the end of the Davidic line. But Zedekiah himself won't be killed, and you can be sure this was not out of kindness. He would be taken with his people back to live in exile, and for the rest of his days he would live as a blind man in the courts of the king of Babylon. Now, after hearing that, what do you think the survivors were asking? Probably something like, Lord, how could this happen? You said we would always be in the land. You said we would have rest from our enemies. You said that David would always have a son on the throne and that his line would endure forever. But here we are, living as captives and exiles in a foreign place, and we've got unbelieving neighbors mocking us, ridiculing us, telling us, sing a song of your precious Zion. How can this be? Lord, your promises must have failed because we don't have a king, we don't have a land. You know, even after a portion of the people come back from the exile in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, they will rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, they will rebuild the temple, though it's not nearly as grand as the one before. But still, there's no son of David on the throne. And even in the text that Steve and Teresa read this morning, guess what? King Herod, he is not from the line of David. There is no Davidic king. And who takes up the task of addressing these hard questions that the people are asking? I want you to think of a large portion of the Old Testament that I've yet to mention. Who's going to address this theological problem, the seeming failure of God to keep his promises? It's going to be the prophets. Men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah, Hosea, Haggai, and Malachi. It's the prophets who will speak. And some of them will overlap with the kings and they will bring the word of the Lord to the people before Jerusalem falls. 
and others are tasked with bringing the word to the people in their exile. But do you know the overarching message of the prophets? There are two things. The first is that God's word has not failed. You, Israel, have sinned and forsaken your Lord, and he has imposed curses on you rather than blessings. That's number one. You remember where we ended last week. If the people remained faithful to the Lord, they would stay in the land, they would be blessed, they would know peace. But if they rebelled against their king, they'd be cursed and driven out. God did not break his promise. The people broke their vows. Listen to the Lord speak to the prophet Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities. Consume the bars of their gates. And devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You see, it's not that God's word failed. His people have forsaken him. They have gone their own way. And these are the results of their sin. But that's not all they say. There is a second thing. The prophets will also offer hope within the darkness. The prophets will speak and say things like, Behold, a day is coming. A day when your Lord will do something new. A day when a new covenant will be established. A day when the king will return. A day when that king will be from the line of David. You know, Jeremiah speaks this word to the people in chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In the seventh chapter of Isaiah, the people are told, 
Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That was spoken 700 years before the events recorded in your Gospel of Luke. Or the ninth chapter of Isaiah, the one we probably know quite well. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's who's coming, O people. In the midst of your despair, although you have no king, although you have no land, remember one day he's coming. And Micah, as uh, was cited in the portion of Matthew this morning, Micah speaks of the place where this king will emerge. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And then finally, this is the last quote. I couldn't leave without this one. Daniel is ministering far off. In a foreign land, away from home, among the exiles, and he's shown a vision of the one who's coming. And he tells the people, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, I've chosen a tiny portion of the words that came from the mouths of the prophets. They will address this problem of the loss of the land and the lack of a son of David on the throne. And they do so in toto. I mean, God's word has not failed. You have sinned and have reaped for yourselves the fruits of covenant breaking. But behold, something new, someone new is coming. 
And after the days of Malachi, the people have 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. Anticipation is building. Will God keep his promises? When will this king, this son of David, come? What will he be like? How will he save us from our sins? How will he reign over the power, with power over his people in his place? And for that answer, we've got to wait. But you can understand why those first people who heard the news in Matthew and Luke's gospel rejoiced. Why were the wise men, as we read this morning, rejoicing and glad? Because the time of waiting was finally over. Let's pray. O come, thou key of David, come. And open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high. And close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Almighty God, we wait as well. Lord, would you fill us with an anticipation of what is coming? That you kept your word. You sent a king from David's line. A king who would conquer death. And would then say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Father, would our confidence in our Lord, our King, and His reign only be strengthened. Lord, we do praise You for Your Word. We praise You that You keep it. We praise You that You have made a way for sinners and covenant breakers and and vow breakers like us to be brought into this kingdom. And Lord, we do so in the name of our long-awaited King and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.